BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So is it time to break up everything big? On the line with us is Sarah Miller, the executive director of the American Economic Liberties Project and the co-chair of Freedom from Facebook. EconomicLiberties.us is the website. Sarah Miller, D.C. is her Twitter handle, S-A-R-A-H. Sarah, welcome to the program. Tell us about the Pandemic Anti-Monopoly Act. Sure, Tom. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to great to be with you. So basically what's happening right now in our economy, whether we like it or not, is this pandemic is allowing large corporations and kind of predatory financial institutions to roll up power, to buy distressed assets, to, to merge, to, to, to kind of uh, bring even more kind of economic and political power to bear on the economy and society. And so what this act would do is essentially just say, we're going to put a timeout on mergers at this point in time when so many businesses are under pandemic-related distress. It's a really common-sense merger, uh, common-sense bill. It um, has provisions to kind of mitigate against sort of any kind of problematic uh, uh, aspects of it. And it will help businesses that should be thriving in normal times continue to thrive and the communities that they support to do so as well. I think most Americans don't realize what kind of a crisis that we are actually living through as a result of bigness here in the United States, these giant monopolies. We pay more for airfare than most countries in the world. You can get internet service while in France for about $25 a month. You get high-speed internet, you know, 100 MIPS up and down, and you get your cell phone service and you get 100 channels of uh, you know, cable TV because they've got competition. They allow the company that owns the pipe into your house basically can't also be the exclusive provider to you of television service or of, of Internet access. Um, those are the smallest examples. I mean, the, the best estimate is that the average American is spending $5,000 a year extra as a, essentially a monopoly tax that we're paying extra for everything from pharmaceuticals to internet service because of these giant monopolies. How do we wake people up to this? And how, how bad is it compared to the rest of the world, or particularly compared to Europe, where they've been fairly aggressive about preventing these kind of monopolies from emerging? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think what we're seeing now in the context of the kind of economic policy response to this pandemic is an opportunity to have this debate. Big, big corporations, big banks have access to lending from the Fed. It flows with the push of a button. Smaller businesses, working people have to go through clunky systems that aren't really set up to support them during kind of critical moments like these. So you are seeing kind of in real time the way that our public institutions are oriented around making life easier for the largest economic entities and most powerful economic entities in the country. And we'll see a whole number of kind of ill effects flowing from that. But, you know, you're exactly right. We are already, previous to this crisis, at a point where large corporate monopolies were extracting wealth from consumers and workers to the tune of $5,000 a year. And you can put that kind of in the context of uh, the $1,200 stimulus check that people are getting. Well, 
a lot of that is going to go straight out the door to large landlords, to healthcare monopolies, to internet monopolies, with a lot of people working from home, right? So this is the goal of our project here. It is to kind of generate uh, a political movement to take on abusive and extractive monopolies that have come to really control key aspects of our economy and our society. You've got a couple of real structural challenges uh, in the face of this. You've got the GTE Sylvania Supreme Court decision in which they they finally adopted uh, Robert Bork's uh, theory that monopolies were actually a good thing for economies because you know large corporations have greater economies of scale than multiple small companies in the same industry. Um, then this was adopted by Congress in a, in a whole variety of different ways. But and and largely in 1983, when the Reagan administration stopped enforcing for all practical purposes the Sherman Antitrust Act and all of its heirs, the, Cla- the Clayton Antitrust Act, the Anti-Monopoly Act of I think it was 1954. How do we deal with these? structural pieces, you know, the, 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 the Supreme Court basically endorsing monopoly in the United States and, 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 and the, and the in, incredible damage that the Reagan administration did, which was never undone. It wasn't undone by Clinton or Obama. You know, it's basically still the policy of the U.S. government to allow giant mergers. Yeah, you're, you're right about that. You certainly know your history and all this stuff. So essentially, I just wrote a book about it. <laughs> one, okay. Well, one of the positive things I think about this uh, this this challenge is that there are a kind of a range of institution and tools that you can use to take on concentrated corporate power. Stopping mergers and kind of unwinding mergers is a specific piece of that in a particular problem. But there are kind of so many ways that our institutions are biased towards supporting the largest corporations and big banks and against everybody else. And so what we can do is you can pass legislation that directly addresses questions of market power, like we did after the Depression. You can make new rules at the Federal Trade Commission, which has the authority to do that, that it doesn't use. State attorneys general can step in. So it's not like there is a one-size-fits-all solution. As part of this overall project, should Congress step in and overturn really bad Supreme Court precedent? Yes, and I think that's something that we need to build power and work to achieve over time. But it is not necessarily true that we have to kind of sit on our hands until Congress acts. I think there are a lot of different avenues to start chipping away at what is a deeply embedded structural problem in our economy right now. And we have to kind of try to continue to find ways to do that. So I think uh, just having the the Pandemic Anti-Monopoly Act, uh, you know, as part of this, this debate and as part of this conversation is an important step forward. You know, in the Sherman Antitrust Act, Senator Sherman of Ohio first put that forward in 1881. I think it passed in 1890, as I recall, or got signed. But really, that last decade of the 19th century, it largely wasn't used. It wasn't until Teddy Roosevelt came along and really started championing this. And then the guy who followed him, William Howard Taft, both Republicans, you know, Taft uh, Mm -hmm. supervised the dismantling of Standard Oil of Ohio. Do you see any Democratic champions who are in a position to be the next Teddy Roosevelt or, or, or William Taft? who are willing to to put this at the center or near the center of their agenda and push this forward? Is there a caucus around this? Are you know, are there any individual politicians? I know Elizabeth Warren has spoken about this, but who's doing what out there? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say right now things are in a huge amount of flux. Um, I think even before this crisis, there was just a lot of learning going on among progressives in particular on how our economy got so unequal, how our democracy got so weak, and um, a growing kind of recognition that at the root of a lot of these problems are certainly kind of adjacent and exacerbating them are questions around concentrated corporate power and all the kind of pernicious effects that that has on consumers and workers and political participation and just kind of justice in our economy at a fundamental level. So I think what I'm seeing is uh, kind of a growing circle of leaders and of political actors and of, of, of businesses and of uh, labor unions who are kind of all beginning to kind of grapple with some of these questions in ways that haven't been done in 40 years. So I don't, I don't put my hopes on a single FDR figure necessarily, but I do think that this is a process in which we are re-examining a lot of the fundamental assumptions uh, for the first time in a long time. 
Well, thank you for the great work you're doing, Sarah, and, and, and keep it up. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your dropping by. EconomicLiberties.us is the website. Sarah Miller, the executive director of the American Economic Liberties Project and the co-chair of Freedom from Facebook. You can tweet her at Sarah Miller, S-A-R-A-H Miller, D.C. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And if you are curious, the book that I wrote on this is called The Hidden History of American Monopolies. Available wherever fine books are available. So some interesting health news out here that I wanted to share with you that I think ties a whole bunch of stuff together. Public health, the ability of people to survive, suicide, death rates, cancer, and politics are all inextricably intertwined. You know, for years and years and years, I've been sharing with you, I mean, this was published in 2002 by the British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC. They published a study back in 2002 that looked at 100 years of suicide statistics in the United Kingdom and Australia. And what they found was that whenever there was conservatives in government, suicide went up. Whenever there were progressives in government, suicide went down. And in fact, the BBC concluded at the end of the study, and it's easy enough to Google this thing, uh, concluded at the end of the study that some 30,000 people would not have died by suicide had conservatives never been elected during that period of time, which is interesting. And I was mentioning before, I I believe I mentioned this uh, in the last, in fact, I'm quite sure I mentioned this in the last hour, that Japan has just reported a 20% drop in suicides a 20% reduction in suicides for the month of April. And they, and they think it's because you know people are at home with their family, they have more time, there's less stress, they're not commuting, the trains there are nuts, they've got pushers who shove you into the cars and squeeze you in like sardines. I've been there, I've seen it, it's, it's crazy. And the kids aren't having to go to school, so suicides are down. I'll bet you, though, in the United States that if we were to look at suicide statistics for April, if the federal government compiled them, and I don't think they do, I think it's done state by state, and so it's a hodgepodge. But you know, maybe one of you out there knows how to get those statistics and, and can let me know. But I'm guessing that suicides in the United States in April went up rather than down. And the difference is that Japan has not experienced an explosion in unemployment. People aren't going to work but they're still employed and they're still getting their paychecks because the governments are being, or the companies are being backstopped by the government. Same thing with Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Germany, Switzerland, France, Spain. I mean, pick your country. They're in complete lockdown and their unemployment rate is 4% or 5%. I don't know Japan's numbers, but I'm, you know, that's, that's true of many of the Scandinavian countries and the Northern European countries. Why? Because, because it's public policy. It's politics. Right? The politicians decided we're going to protect the people. And so not only do they have less of the public health crisis of this coronavirus, but they have less of the public health crisis of suicide. Well, it goes beyond just suicide. It goes to things like cancer and heart attacks. And this is just an absolutely amazing study. And keep in mind, as I'm telling you about this study, here's another statistic to, to just hold as your baseline. This is the uh, headline from uh, Microsoft News, article by Jessica Glenza. The headline, up to 43 million Americans could lose health insurance amid pandemic, study says. Seven million people are unlikely to find new insurance because they've got, you know, they can't afford it. They can't, you know, they can't, they can't even sign up for Obamacare. John Cornyn, the senator from Republican senator from Texas, is now saying, "Hey, Obamacare is great. You could sign up for Obamacare if you lose your health insurance." Right? With what money? With that twelve hundred dollars I got two months ago? Really? So anyhow, here's the study. This this is uh, uh, came out of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. Oncology, of course, the study of cancer. 27 states plus Washington, D.C. expanded Obama, expanded uh, Medicaid as a result of Obamacare. 23 Republican-controlled states did not expand benefits. 
Now, the cancer death rate has been dropping in the United States ever since the late 1990s because that was when we took down the tobacco industry. 1996, 1997, those were the years that everybody learned that the tobacco industry was killing us and lying to us. And this massive lawsuit, hundreds of millions of dollars, all that kind of stuff. And we, we stopped smoking. We banned it on airplanes. We banned it in restaurants. And that has driven a drop in cancer deaths overall. Now, some kinds of cancer are still going up in the United States, um, you know, but, but lung cancer, which was the main driver, half million dead Americans every year, is going down. But this is fascinating. They, they looked at uh, from 1999 to 2017, and they were only looking at people under 65 because people over 65 have Medicare. And what they found was that in states that expanded Medicaid, there was a 29% drop in cancer deaths. And in those Republican-controlled states that refused to expand Medicare, like you know, Rick Scott's Florida, the drop in death rates was only 25%. And when they looked at this little window from uh, 2000, uh, 2011, excuse me, 2015 to 2017, they found that the difference was even more profound. It's incredible. Anyhow, we'll be back with uh, your calls and thoughts on all this, as well as more of mine. Uh, the U.S. just cut funding to study bat coronaviruses, by the way. Isn't that brilliant? They just lost a grant from the National Institutes of Health, this group called EcoHealth Alliance. Tom Hartman here with you, and on the line with us is Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, uh, the author of numerous books, his most recent, Understanding Socialism. And uh, in addition to democracyatwork.info, you can find his work at rdwolf with two fs.com, and you can tweet him at profwolf with two fs. And Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. It's so nice to have you. I shared with you this morning this article in the Financial Times titled The Fed's Vietnam Moment by Robin Wigglesworth, in which Robin is suggesting that by going into a territory, I mean, you're an actual economist. Jerome Powell is a banker. He's not an economist. He's a multimillionaire banker and hedge fund guy who is running the Fed. And they're starting now to buy not just corporate bonds, including bonds of banks and big manufacturing companies and things, which are obviously supporting their stock prices, but they're also buying junk bonds. And in this article, Wigglesworth is saying, you know, this is sort of like Jack Kennedy putting some men in Vietnam. It's going to be really hard to pull out, and it's going to end badly. I'm wondering your thoughts on that, sir. Yeah, I think Robin's right on the money. This is being done, maybe he, you know, didn't think this through, this is being done on the basis of panic. I've been trying to explain to audiences, what you're seeing now is not some kind of cool, calm application of, of well-trodden paths of policy. Yes, they talk like that, and they dress in their suits and ties, and they're supposed to exude calm. But right beneath that, a millimeter under that surface, is sheer panic. We've never seen a stock market collapse the way it did that far that fast. We've never seen the explosion of unemployment that far that fast, even including the Great Depression. So we are in uncharted, terrifying territory. And literally what you're seeing is that the Federal Reserve is throwing all kinds of money, now measured in the trillions, at everything that it can think of, and because of who these people are, Powell and all the others, that means the biggest corporations get it first, the biggest banks get it first. If there's some to be uh, added to that, well, then they'll go down to the middle ranks, maybe. And you can see that. They started off with just government treasuries. Then they started buying the best-rated corporate bonds. Now it's the not-so-best-rated corporate bonds. They are desperate. They will continue. They really do have the attitude that people have going into a primary election. If you don't win the primary, there's no point in worrying about the general election. You won't be in it. So you've got to give your all to the primary, even if it requires you to say and do things that will come back to haunt you later. And these things will. You're creating a situation in which every problem, every sizable corporation faces now, no matter how much it's its own fault, the quickest 
simplest and easiest and cheapest way to solve the problem is to issue bonds, sell them to the Federal Reserve, who are desperate to buy them anyway. The opportunity for chicanery, corruption, misallocation of resources is stupefying. CEO after CEO will get their hands on this virtually free money from the Fed, plow it into the stock market. That's where you'll see the inflation. You've already seen it the last two or three weeks. And it will be a casino going up at the same time that the underlying economy is literally going in the opposite direction. Look at it this way, Tom. For the last month, 35 million Americans lost their job. And the stock market did really well for the top 5% of the people who own the bulk of the stocks. A disconnect like that, that's a system spinning out of control. Yeah. To what extent is the Fed constrained in basically, you know, creating money and loaning it out to big corporations by buying their bonds? My understanding was that they have to take a certain amount of money from the Treasury and use that basically as a reserve or a floor or something, and then they can leverage against that at a particular ratio, and that in two of the bailouts, there has been money set aside for the Fed to use this way. My recollection was it was between four and $500 billion, and then there was another one that was uh, much smaller, $10, $20 billion, that they could then leverage into five, six, seven trillion or hundreds of billions. Do I have that right? My understanding is very fuzzy. I'm sorry. You you have it right in terms of the formality. But the reality behind the formality is that the limit they have in terms of the amount of money the Treasury has set aside, that's a congressional action. And if the Fed were to go and say, look, $4 trillion isn't enough, it has to be $6 trillion, it would probably take them a matter of minutes to get the votes out of the Congress and unfortunately from the Democratic side too, to get that amount extended, enlarged, to free them up. In practice, given the political realities, there is no limit. They create money now by literally hitting a key on a keyboard that raises the amount of money in a large bank's account at the Fed by however many billions of dollars the Fed thinks would quote-unquote help the economic situation of the United States. That's what they sit around and decide. They are not effectively constrained by that little arrangement that you described quite well. Am I correctly remembering also that the Fed can't directly buy treasuries or corporate bonds? They have to buy them through an intermediate bank, and that bank gets to charge a fee. So if the Fed is buying trillions of dollars worth of bonds, the New York banks are making presumably hundreds of billions of dollars in profits? I believe the arrangement is that the Fed has to buy through what are called dealer banks. And those are banks that have, because of their size and their history, qualified to be one of the transacting dealers with the Federal Reserve. I guess the dealers get a fee for what they do, and the banks make their money mostly by first lending money to the U.S. government, the Treasury, and then immediately reselling the bonds they get in exchange, the U.S. Treasury bonds, for a few dollars more per hundred to the Federal Reserve so it can pump money in by buying those treasuries that the banks had bought literally an hour earlier from the U.S. Treasury. So it's a bit of of playing a game, of making there be some routines, because the fear was if you didn't have a few of these formal steps, granted that they're not real, but they're formal steps, then there would be literally nothing to prevent a president like Trump or anybody else from just using the printing press. And there's that scary history, now roughly 5,000 years old, of emperors, kings, monarchs of all kind printing money so that the population slowly loses faith in the money. The old story of gold right. coins that were 90% copper because that was the way for the king to fake it. The fear of that, the fear of all the empires that collapsed when they got into this endless money generation by whoever was an authority. That's why we have some of these intermediate steps. But if you ask your question, do they really limit 
No, they are steps to go through. They're governed by political procedures. The terror in Washington is now so deep across both political parties that if the Federal Reserve says almost anything that it needs, they are not going to be in a position to say, no, that's a political risk none of them is prepared to take. That's uh, absolutely, absolutely extraordinary. Professor Richard Wolf, democracyatwork.info and rdwolf with two fs.com, propwolf on Twitter. Thank you, Dr. Wolf. Thanks so much for dropping by today. My pleasure, Tom. Glad to be speaking with you. Thank you. Back at you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. That article, by the way, was called The Fed's Vietnam Moment. It's at the Financial Times if you want to read it. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ronnie in New Berlin, Wisconsin. Hey, Ronnie, what's up? When you guys were talking this morning, I never seemed to understand how the Fed is just able to give these large corporations more money. You know, he said it's basically, they're not even printing the money. They're just pushing a button and adding zeros into their account. That's correct. So, like, Congress has no say on this? I don't understand that process. Congress could stop it by legislating specifically a no to the Fed. The existing law gives the Fed the ability to buy Treasury securities, you know, bonds issued by the Treasury Department. The Treasury Department authorizes and issues the U.S. debt. But our currency, there's two pieces to our currency. Our coins are actually the property of the federal government. The federal government, the Treasury Department, issues coins. So if you've got you know, a quarter in your pocket, that's actual currency issued by the U.S. government. But if you have a dollar bill in your pocket or a $100 bill in your pocket, that is not issued by the U.S. government. That's issued by the Fed, which is a separate thing. So the Fed controls the money supply, but they put a firewall in there that the principal way that the Fed expands and contracts the money supply is by buying government debt, by buying federal bonds. And, and whenever they buy bonds, they basically are removing from the economy cash and just putting it on their balance sheet, holding on to it. And if they want to increase the money supply, they sell bonds and you know, sell them back out to the marketplace and you know, so there's more circulating. But they have to go through a bank to do it. I believe it's one of the 10 Fed banks. Richard Wolf today mentioned there was a specific type of bank, and I'm sorry, I don't remember what it was. But to the best of my knowledge, there's no authorization in the law that created the Fed. And this is back in 1913, but it's been updated a number of times over the years that allows them to buy corporate debt. 
which is what they're doing now. And what they started doing in 2009, they called it quantitative easing. Quantitative easing was actually much larger than that. And part of it was trying to ease out of this. But they were buying, you know, back in 2009 and now, well, back in 2009, TARP was the federal government buying bad debt. Now you've got the Fed buying bad debt of these corporations. I think it's illegal. I've seen, I've read several op-eds in the Financial Times over the last two or three months explicitly saying that it's illegal. But as Richard Wolf said, the panic in Washington, D.C. and New York City right now is so high that they are throwing everything they can against the wall, hoping something will stick. They're just scared to death. Tim in Los Angeles. Hey, Tim, what's on your mind today? The one thing that Franklin Roosevelt understood from his own experiences as well was that people need purpose. I think this would mm-hmm. really be a really be a great time to kickstart uh, the Green New Deal. We could have people out I there agree. planting trees ten feet apart. You know, we could have all kinds of, of like projects like to you know gophers for the for the medical profession. You know, people that, that you know just like get their lunches and make sure they're taken care of. I think people would volunteer for this kind of movement. Tim, you know who uh, is credited basically as being the architect of the Green New Deal is Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Did you know that the Biden campaign just put her made her the co-chair of their climate project? Whoopee. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really good news. I mean, that's, that, you know, so step by step. Yeah, I, I am with you, and, and, you know, we need to be moving in these directions. Adam in New Orleans. Hey, Adam, what's on your mind? So how long to recover? Many decades. And um, we've got a 40-year establishment campaign executed with almost military precision. The pace and the breadth of damage has increased. You're talking about the Reaganism campaign? Well, yeah, no, U.S. Chamber. Beginning with the right. U.S. Chamber in 78 uh, and then beyond it, um, it's, it's really been breathtaking. And they have done this. They've gone after all the legislation, all the laws, all the regulation. And we, we're also seeing a, a dramatic increase in that pace and breadth of change, uh, complements of the GOP. And um, I mean, they've stacked the courts at this point. We don't have, and this is the linchpin, I believe, we don't have a viable fourth estate to call uh, truth to power, and mm-hmm. uh, that has been completely corrupted. So now between you know the climate crisis, starvation, a global depression, 70-plus million people soon to be without health insurance, now the likelihood that Trump and the GOP will do anything, and I mean anything, to maintain power, we're now looking at the, you know, a real chance of civil war, World War III, um, I'm not sure that if Trump ordered people uh, did, you know, to be disappeared, that he somehow deemed to be uh, enemies of the state. This would include people right. like you and me. I think that they'd be disappeared. And yeah, Congress you're talking about a night of the long knives. Congress and SCOTUS have proven um, not to be willing or able to rein this guy in. Yeah. It, it, uh, it concerns me that in the five days since Sunday, Donald Trump has called 20 different Americans criminals and in public, uh, which puts a target on their backs. It, uh, you know, I mean, there, in just a few hours ago in, in Lansing, Michigan, there was a big fight in front of the Capitol building between the protesters. You had the Nazis and the Klan, basically. <laughs> and the Klan, the Klan people had brought a noose and, and uh, you know, with a doll uh, hanging from it and uh, not sure who exactly they were claiming should be hung, but presumably uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, because they, 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 the last time they did this last week, there were a bunch of signs that said, bring a noose, get a rope. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and the guy with the, with the noose got attacked by a person who was saying, wait a minute, that that's over the top. <laughs> you know, that's beyond the pale. Uh, you know, having a, having a swastika, that's all good, right? <laughs> but having a noose? Oh, man. It's, it's like, the, you know, where do these guys draw their lines? But, uh, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't laugh. This is dead serious stuff. People, people are already dying. 80,000 Americans have died. Probably another 100,000 will die before we get any, any sense of control over this, uh, you know, probably sometime this winter. And, uh, and we get a new president and a new Congress, Lord willing. Uh, it's, uh, this is grim stuff. It's very grim stuff. Adam, thanks a lot for the call. 
Um, it's 45 minutes past the hour. We'll be back with more of your calls in just a moment. It's the Tom Hartman program. The place where we ask, is uh, Walmart a person? Really? Bank of America? You think that's a person? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. And Nancy in Huntsville, Alabama. Hey, Nancy, what's up? You know, we're giving Trump all this credit, which he deserves, of killing Americans. We need to tell people that the Republicans, all of them, are allowing this to happen to us. They don't care. I mean, it shouldn't be Donald Trump did this. It should be the Republicans and Donald Trump were okay with the policy that didn't allow the government to send people money who are dying, who need it. The Republican Party once again turned their heads and watched Trump do this against its American people. I mean, the Republicans are getting a pass. They're able to hide from TV right now. I call my senator. It's always a voicemail. Can't mm-hmm. talk to anybody. And I'd like to know if each of them, I'd like to ask, what, do they remember the day that they gave up their integrity? When was their integrity given in for power? What's the day? Everybody decided. I think, I think, Nancy, if you had asked that question back in the 1980s, you would actually get an answer from a lot of these Republicans. They, it, it would be, well, it was uh, 76 when the Supreme Court ruled that corporations could own politicians. Or, well, it was 1981 when the, when the RNC itself started passing out money in a really, really big way to Republican members of Congress. But I would submit to you, Nancy, that the current crop of Republicans are Republicans because they have no integrity from the get-go. None of those Republicans. I, I can't think of a single elected Republican. I mean, it, John McCain might have been the last Republican who had even a shred or a, 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 a patina, you know, a, a little surface covering of integrity. And, uh, and Lindsey Graham was supposed to be his very best friend. But look at Lindsey Graham now. I mean, I don't think that these I think the fact that they are Republican elected officials literally on its face, prima facie evidence that they have no integrity, that they never had integrity. These are probably the people who, who like uh, Scott Walker, the former governor of Wisconsin, cheated in elections in high school. What do you think? Well, I would have to agree way back when if they ever had it. But at least they didn't yeah. kill us. At least they weren't okay yeah. with Americans dying. That's where they well, the let me let me let me let me challenge you there, Nancy. These guys since 1980 have been opposed to to Americans having access to health care. Yeah. Okay. Which uh, I mean, here, you know, they're fine with Americans dying. It, it, as bad, I mean, it's, it's so funny because, I mean, basically you, you keep saying, well, at, at least they're not this terrible. And I'm saying, no, no, they're worse than that. And then you're going, well, yeah, I guess they are. And it's like, well, I mean, oh, why man. are we calling them out? We have all truth. We have the yeah. truth on our side. Why isn't the yeah. media speaking truth when a Republican is heard, dog, you know, dogging us? Somebody, ought, I mean, they just aren't inserting themselves. We can't yeah. win this without them. And if we don't yeah, there's control, a f- after this, we'll never have a chance. They are already got it all fixed. I think we may not get to win it because of how they're fixing the election. Rigging the they elections don't seem too things, worried yeah. about it because they, yeah. they don't seem too worried about it. And that worries me. Well, that's my biggest fear, Nancy, is that is that Trump flips us into full-out fascism and that we don't recover from it. And I think that, you know, I'd assign about a 20% probability of that. Nancy, thank you very much for the call. Marshall in Asheville, North Carolina. Hey, Marshall, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? After listening to Michael Mann the other day, that was a little discouraging. And do you remember the derivatives uh, market at the last great crash, 2008, 2009? Yeah, there's a there's a new one. That was that was derivatives based on mortgages. Now they've got derivatives based on consumer debt. That they're doing the same thing. Right, and, and I did a little and, homework and on that, debt. and I found the nominal value at uh, a quadrillion dollars. Yikes. That's that's a thousand trillion is a quadrillion? That is correct, yes. Wow. I, I don't know what that's it was. That's mind-boggling. In I mean, there's not that much currency in circulation. Yeah, but it's uh, at least ten times the whole the global GDP. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, we're 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 on some very, very economically, we're on very, very thin ice. And frankly, I think politically we're on very thin ice right now, too, with the rise of fascism in the United States and all over the world. Um, uh, you know, these are these are scary times. So um, what what are you foreseeing? I mean, you know, you're, you're looking at this at the economics here. I'm assuming you have some uh, some grounding and understanding of economics. What does this tell you, uh, Marshall? Uh, it tells me that our economic crash will be much more severe than the 2008-2009. Oh, I think that's a given. I, 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 the question is, is it going to be worse than 1929-1930? Uh, most likely because I think we're going to lose confidence in the, the global financial situation. Yeah. 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 It's going to be a tough one. It really is. Marshall, thank you for the call that, you know, we need to dig a little more into that. You know, how much debt is out there? Vic in Stockton, California. Hey, Vic, what's up? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking the call. I wanted your thoughts on my idea that I'll take off the air. And that's that the Americans should be airing two points incessantly since they've been losing the messaging war against the Republicans for the last 40 years. These two points they should be hammering away at. Number one, Pointing out Mitch McConnell's hypocrisy on two levels. Number one, railing against socialism. That's what he does all the time. But he approved the stimulus money to help families. Okay. And number two, he's a hypocrite because he's more than happy to have the American people subsidize 72% of his Obamacare premium. And that's the first point. Number second point is that Fox News, which Democrats should be hammering American people on and the media about, is that Fox News, otherwise known as the Ministry of Propaganda, is also a hypocrite because their anchors are practicing social distancing while telling their viewers it's okay not to do so. I'll take a call yeah. off the air. Thanks, yeah. Tom. Okay. Yeah, thanks, Vic. Yeah, I, you know, I pointed that out yesterday. Uh, Fox News, uh, in fact, a, a memo apparently went out yesterday to this effect that uh, they're not going to be uh, allowing people back into their offices outside of, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know there's, there's a few essential people, the guys who run the studios and things, but but basically, they're not going to be allowing people back into the studios for their talent, at least until June 15th. That same talent who on the air every day are saying, oh, it's not a big deal. It's just like a common cold. It's, you know, it's all good. Right? Uh, not so much. We'll be right back. Stick around. Then it goes Friday. Norma in Montgomery, Alabama. Hey, Norma, what's on your mind today? You were talking about inflation and deflation and the value of our dollar. And right. one of the things yes, that's happening right now is the hospitals are having financial problems. So they're cutting the wages of the doctors and the nurses, particularly here in Alabama at what's called UAB Hospital. Well, mm-hmm. I am thinking about when this is over and everybody goes back to work, will they go back to work at the wage they had before? This is a probably not because before and that argues for deflation. Yes, before he got sick, Rand Paul submitted a bill for right to work as a national law. Hmm. It's already been passed in what thirty states, and if you have a right to work national law, it will eliminate minimum wage. There will no longer be a minimum wage, which most people do not understand. It's like a contract. Wait a minute. Why is that, Norma? There's, there's still a minimum wage in those states that have adopted right to work for less. Why, why would a national one do that? What does that have to do with, with the ability to unionize, which is really at the core of, of this uh, Taft-Hartley stuff, this right to work for less? Well, if you look at the way it's written, most of them are identical from some state to state. But some of the states, mm-hmm. it has you have the right to go work for whatever somebody offers to pay you. You cannot force uh-huh. them to pay you a minimum wage. And so, if so are there some states like Alabama that no longer have a minimum wage functionally? We have a minimum wage right now. They are waiting until they make this a national law. And once this becomes a national law. Anybody who goes to apply for a job, they'll tell you, well, we're not going to pay minimum wage because this is a right-to-work state. And so you mm-hmm. will, if you want this job, you accept the wage we offer you. And what it. one corporation does, they all do. And there also is a, are rumors of the fact that it would also eliminate whether or not you work in a clean, safe environment. If you want to work for us, you work the way we tell you to work. 
this would, you know, how can people, if they go, they're looking for a job and the job pays five bucks an hour, how far will they get working for that? And if every corporation does the same thing, you're going to devalue wages, which is going to ruin the economy. Right. And, and that's the deflationary spiral where you cut wages and then workers have less money, so they stop buying things. So companies have to cut prices in order to sell things. And they cut the prices, which means their profit margins go away, so they have to cut wages more. And it, it just spirals. This is what happened between 1929 and 1933. The, you know, wages and prices both just spiral downward. And, that, and that, that deflation causes something called depressions, whereas inflation typically causes something called recessions. And yes. um, I think it will also well cause bankruptcy and foreclosures. And yeah, now that there's... will also destroy the, the home market, you know, the housing market. It will just destroy a housing market. And yes, so, absolutely. And then you will have more land available for foreign investors, and we will have more of our country sold out from under us. Now, the flip side of this, there's a piece in the Financial Times today about how the supply chain disruptions are going to be inflationary. Um, we're going to be running out of drugs soon. We're going to be running it. We're, you know, we're out of PPE. So states are paying three, four, five times retail for PPE. Um, that these are all inflationary forces um, as a consequence of, of mistakes of globalism. Um, I, I'm skeptical that that's going to be big enough. And I see this massive deflation in oil right now. And I think it's a harbinger of a Great Depression and a massive deflation to come. And I'm assuming yeah, your book you're was just a couple years out. early. Your book your yeah. crash of 2016 was a couple years early, but I see it happening. And one yeah. thing, please write a pamphlet on superdelegates and electoral college so that we can, you know, I can buy a dozen of them from you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Please. All right. Well, please. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, I think there's a chapter about that in the hidden history of the war on voting. But uh, yeah, I, I, a, more, a more direct point. Maybe I can do some op-eds on that. Norma, thank you. It's great to hear from you. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Larry in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Larry, what's on your mind today? How are you doing, Tom? Sounds like you're all fired <laughs> up. I say, uh... <laughs> Don't let your blood pressure get the best of you, my friend. Um, yeah, it's not I've good. Got a, We're good. I've got a situation here where my blood pressure got up over this uh, Mitch McConnell talking blue state things. And I'm looking mm -hmm. at, a, at a deal here through WalletHub, and basically it's titled uh, The Most Federally Dependent States. Um, and Kentucky, Mitch McConnell State, is number five. Um, I know right. that you normally don't let anybody read, but could I read the top 12 Republican states, for the most part, sure. that are the most dependent. Yeah, go for it, Randy. Okay, thank you. Oh, my God, I just missed it. Um, here we go. Number one is New Mexico. Number two is Mississippi. Number three is West Virginia. Number four is Montana. Number five is Kentucky. Number six, Alaska. Number seven, Arizona. Number eight, Indiana. Number nine, Alabama. Number 10, South Carolina. Number 11, Wyoming. Number 12, Louisiana. Number 13 is North Dakota, the oil rich state. So uh, if they want to talk and about. These are all states, that, states that, that when they send a dollar to the federal government, they get more than a dollar back. Yes, Moocher, Moocher Unlike state, California we, and New York. We bail them jerks out, and these blue states bail these jerks and these bum states out every day of the year. And I just wanted to make that point, and hopefully we can change that argument and um, bring some common sense to this. But yeah, I'm uh, with you. I love you, but and take care, man. Have a nice day. Thank you, Randy. Thanks. I appreciate the the kind words, Dave in uh, Still Washington. Am I saying that right? Dave? You got it, brother. You got it. Hey, thank you. Hey, you 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 had a you've been having a really good uh, guest uh, commentator on uh, Dr. Richard Wolf. Mm-hmm. Can you think of a better, better person to, that would be the uh, uh, the head of the secretary of the Department of Labor in the Biden administration? We oh, need Robert to start Wolf making some brilliant. noise about this. 
Or bring back Robert Reich. He was he was the one cabinet officer in the entire Clinton administration that I you know genuinely respected. Um, he, you know, uh, and Robert Reich is still out there you know beating the drum. And, Reich and, is good. He's Reich got a new good. book out. It's called Wolf is the better. System, as I recall. Yeah, it's called the okay. System. Reich is pretty good it. stuff, but Richard Wolf is even better. And we need him in the cabinet somewhere. So let's make some yeah. noise. Let's have a draft Wolf uh, national campaign. Okay. <laughs> Okay. He's got the credentials. He's got the credentials. He's got the expertise. He's got the motivation. He's got the ideology. Wow. You know. Hey, thanks. Thanks for the great job, man. Out here. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. Yeah. You know, Richard Wolf is a very, very smart guy and a very, you know, he really knows his topic inside out, top to bottom. And, uh, you know, we all always appreciate his. his sharing his knowledge and insights with us. You know, I've learned a lot from him over the years. His new book, Understanding Socialism, is actually a really good book. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is Pat McGee, a filmmaker. The latest film is The Bernie Blackout. PatMcGeePictures.com is the website. Twitter handle is 242life, 24T-O-L-I-F-E. Pat, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Tom. Uh, what a what an mm-hmm. honor to be on and to, to speak with you. Thanks. Well, they, thank you. This is this is a remarkable. Uh, it's what about an hour and a half or thereabouts um, uh, video, and and uh, it's being distributed by uh, Vice TV. It's at vicetv.com. People can find it. I'm assuming from patmcgeepictures.com as well. Uh, tell us about the Bernie blackout. What, specifically, are you, you're talking about the the media ignoring Bernie here? Originally, when we set out to shoot the Bernie Sanders campaign, it was really about capturing a movement and a culture of his supporters. But what had happened is when we were on the campaign trail, we really, you know, we kept a close eye on what was going on with the media and what was, you know, earlier labeled as the Bernie blackout, where. You know, the campaign wasn't receiving enough coverage in some people's eyes. It had kind of morphed into this idea that there was this um, this aggressive um, cable punditry, you know, corporate media effort to really kind of, you know, skew the filter for what people were, uh, you know, seeing with the, the Sanders campaign. Um, Yeah, it it it, yeah. it um, you know one of the things that I noticed was that if the Tea Partiers, if right wingers show up with you know a hundred people someplace uh, to to say or do something outrageous, it's all over the corporate media, it's all over the mainstream media. If uh, twenty thousand people show up to hear Bernie Sanders, or for that matter Elizabeth Warren, there was also a substantial blackout on her, uh, and, and I think for probably very similar reasons, uh, it just it goes uncovered. It, it doesn't it doesn't get you know as you said the coverage it deserves. It doesn't get coverage. Period. Why do you think that yeah, is? I, you know, Tom. I mean, that's a great point. I mean, you know, on the campaign trail, you would see tens of thousands of people come out. And, and just go crazy, you know, show their support, you know, people taking off, you know, time from college, from work, you know, going door to door, you know, in the dead of winter. And, you know, I, I, you kept seeing this, this, uh, this electability issue that was being, you know, propped up by corporate media. And I, I just could not understand for the life of me where they kept saying that, you know, Bernie Sanders is not electable. When you looked at the polls at the time, not just Bernie Sanders, but Elizabeth Warren and, and several other Democratic uh, candidates were all within um, a couple points or ahead of Trump in most situations. So we saw this, this narrative that was being propped up by corporate media that Joe Biden was the most electable candidate. And who was raising the most money? Senator Bernie Sanders raised the most money. Who had the most people um, coming out to the rallies? Senator Bernie Sanders. And it, it just, it, I could not figure out for the life of me how, you know, how that was happening. You know, one thing in the film, uh, before we even started shooting, was there was a rally in Los Angeles, in Venice. You know, 14,000 people came out. The LA Times didn't even cover it. But they actually covered Whoa. a Joe Biden uh, little get-together of 50 people. And, and, you know, what's going on? You know, I mean, and I think what we really discovered on the campaign trail is that there's this, you know, this this new generation of voters, and you know they don't they're not trusting mainstream media, they're not trusting corporate media, and they're looking for other outlets, 
You know, they're looking for independent journalism. They don't trust MSNBC. They don't trust CNN. They don't trust Fox, and they don't trust the cable pundits. And I think it's we're at a really critical moment um, in our time, and you know, in history with politics, is how we get our information. And I hope I hope this film kind of adds to that conversation. Yeah, uh, the the. The thing that I found most fascinating about this film, we're talking about this new movie, Bernie Blackout. And just, uh, Pat, uh, real quickly, tell people how they can find this. Sure. It's on, if you go to vice.tv, um, it's also on, it'll be on again next Thursday at 8 p.m. On, on the actual Vice TV station. It's also on Amazon Prime. I think you can purchase it. Um, and if you go to the, uh, the vice.app, uh, which is also on Apple TV. Um, there's a lot of ways to, to, to watch. It's a little confusing. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that I thought was one of the most effective uh, things that you know that I thought you you did was you would you would lay out an argument against Bernie that was that was being made by somebody. You would completely and thoroughly debunk it, and then you would go to pundit after pundit after pundit, reporter after reporter after reporter recycling and repeating this thoroughly debunked, uh, you know, attack, um, you know, uh, as if as if they they didn't realize that it was BS. I mean, it, 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 it and, and yet I, I do you think it's that these folks really live in this bubble that they don't know what's going on or or I mean, it, it's kind of hard to believe that that you know Andy Lack or you know the, the 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 you know the head of CNN or whatever would be telling their reporters uh, you know here's how you have to behave relative to this candidate versus that candidate or are they all drinking the same Kool Aid of electability or or is it uh, hey we've got to support the system as it were we're institutionalists and this is how you know like it or not this is our system we have for profit health insurance people get screwed that's just the way. It is. We're we're going to keep things going. I mean, I, I don't. I I I I didn't get this question answered by the movie, and I'm not hearing an answer from you right now. Why is this? Do you have a sense of why it is, Pat McGee? Yeah, you know, I, I think that's a it's a really good question, and I don't believe there's a there's one simple, concrete answer or silver bullet. I think it's a combination of all these factors. And I mean, honestly, you know, there's there's firsthand accounts from Ed Schultz in Crystal Ball. I mean, Ed Schultz literally being told by the president to not cover the Bernie Sanders announcement in 2016. You know, when you hear that um, as a firsthand example of the president telling you what to cover and what not to cover, when clearly that was you're talking, uh, the, you're talking somebody at MSNBC telling him that. Yeah, the president. I mean, Ed Schultz literally says in our film, I mean, you know, when he was alive, there's a clip of him explaining the story, firsthand account right. of the president calling him and saying, you are not going to cover this story. That, that is direct evidence that these things occur. Now, if, that, if that's one example that you're hearing from Ed Schultz, how many, how many other examples are there? How many other cases of this going on? Crystal Ball said the same thing, where, you know, she wasn't pressured she wasn't told exactly not to cover Hillary. She was told if she was going to cover Hillary that it had to be approved by the people higher up. So I think there's this, this, this known pressure that if you're going to do something like this, you know, you have to get the right clearance. And, you know, I, I, don't, I think these journalists, these corporate journalists that run the debates that are the cable pundits on MSNBC and CNN, they know who their advertisers are. They're well aware of it. You know, we, we had Jeff Cohen come on the show, and he shared the story of how when he was the producer of the Phil Donahue show, you know, they basically removed the Phil Donahue show because they didn't want to have anti-war guests on talking about, hey, you know, here's, here's what's going on. So Yeah, this is in 2003 in the, in the run-up to the war in Iraq, or 2002. Correct. Yeah, yes, Tom. That's right. Yeah. Amazing stuff. 
Pat, I got to bail out here, but thank you for the okay. thanks for dropping by. PatMcGeePictures.com. The the movie's over at uh, Vice.tv or ViceTV.com. You can uh, you can check it out. PatMcGeePictures.com. Pat, thanks. Keep up the great work. Oh, and it's on as you said, it's on Amazon. Amazon Prime. Thanks, Pat. Thanks, Tom. Abdul in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Abdul, what's up? And I think I've been trying to know why we've not been able to reach the outside populace so that they can be aware that there's something good in that. So you did know, you, you lived in a country that had had a national health care system and high taxes? Oh, sure, sure. I mean, you don't have to worry about copies. Where was that? You, know, you don't have to worry. No, no, I'm just saying what the lady said, the story she gave when she moved to Sweden. Yeah. And the, the, the other gentleman even called and was trying to support that as well. So and your so experience was, was the same as hers. Was that in the United Kingdom? No, I mean, I worked for Oxfam, but I wasn't based in the United Kingdom, but it was a similar situation. Right. You know, but then I could limit it here and the, the, the amount of stress around healthcare, right. you know, how it's just too much. So I don't know why this is not yet outside the domain of the public. I agree. This is this is why we're seeing yeah. these diseases of despair. We're seeing an explosion in deaths that are the consequence of drug drug abuse, alcohol abuse, and obesity. And the, you know these yeah. these are considered diseases of despair. Abdul, thank you for the call. Um, boy, what a day! We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. But in the meantime, don't forget it. it Democracy doesn't just happen. It doesn't fall out of the sky. It requires all of us getting active and involved and showing up and participating. And that includes you. And by the way, it's great therapy, right? If you're a little freaked out or feeling a little depressed or bummed out or seasonal affective disorder or whatever it may be, you know, show up for drinking liberally. Show up for your local Democratic Party. Show up for, for you know, indivisible. Whatever, whatever you can find. Participate. Get out there, get active. Tag, you're in. And tell your friends about progressive media. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 